And in that moment, we're, we're going to continue to worship. We're going to continue to seek God. And the scripture is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And so, yes, in that moment, just imagine, you know, that if it's, how, how sweet would it be if it was in the moment of just during worship and as you're worshiping and you're connecting with God through worship and the Spirit of God is, is, is touching your heart and, and you, your eyes are closed and you, maybe the transition is a little seamless as you open your eyes and you realize that you're in the presence of God. You're in the presence of Jesus for the first time. But, you know, I, I think that what's important to me is that as we, we read things like this in our Bible, is that it translates that this is reality. This is not, you know, this is not stories. This is not Star Wars in a far, far galaxy, far away in a distant land. This is, this is truth. This is reality. These are things that um, are going to really happen to us. And one day we'll be changed in the instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And then it says, for this corruption, corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and thus mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death and sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. Um, I don't know why I had this thought. You guys, was it Shawshank Redemption? Yeah. That I, I think of that, that concept of, you know, the story, and I don't remember right which one it was. One of those, I think it might have been Shawshank. There was another one that was similar, it might have been, but that, just terrible life in prison, in, in, in isolation for many years and and just a really miserable existence and, and wrongfully accused and all these things. And, um, and on, the, on the floor of the cell where he spent many years in, in isolation was just one word that he spent, you know, all that time carving in the ground. And the word was victory. Not Shawshank. Another one like it. And, and it's, just, it's just like for this, this miserable existence in his life in a, in, a, in a single cell for so many years, but yet in death... There was victory. And the victory comes in death. There's victory in Jesus. And, you know, for a terrible story, a terrible life, and a sad life to, to end with just that idea, this idea right here. There's victory in Jesus. One other important note on this verse. This is not what we're going through today, but the Lord put it on my heart, this verse on my heart when we were in worship. But look what this says. This says, um, behold, I tell you a mystery. And we know biblically in the, in the New Testament, when we find the word mystery, it's a mystery revealed. It was a, a mystery in the context of the Old Testament that we, we couldn't understand fully until Jesus died on a cross, he rose again, until we have further revelation. We talked about on Sunday um, the mystery of the Babylonian religion. And the further we get, the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more things are, are obvious and they're evident. When the sun comes up in the morning and it's dawn, you can't see as far. In the noonday, you can, you can see a lot farther as the sun rises in the sky. And so this is a mystery that, that, that's revealed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So this... God gave us this verse here, especially 51, for all of our um, infant nurseries. That we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So this is your mantra if you work in the nursery. They won't all sleep, but they must all be changed. All right. 
All right, if you have your Bibles, turn them to Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2 today. We left off in verse 7 last week. Uh, quick announcement as you're turning there. We have a Valentine's banquet. It, it snuck up on me. I've been telling Josh for a month or two since, I don't know, before Christmas that we were going to do Valentine's banquet this year. And then for whatever reason, just didn't really get the word out very soon. So now we only have a week and a half left. It's a week from Friday. So I need everybody to sign up because the main thing is I've got to order food. And I don't know how much food to order. So there's some sign-up sheets in the, in the coffee shop. So please tonight, if you're here and you plan on coming to the Valentine's banquet, um, will you sign up for me? And then, um, of course, anything we do, you know, cost is never prohibitive. So if it's a problem for you, let me know. I actually had somebody tonight offer to pay for you to go. So if you do have a financial struggle, just let me know and we'll get that covered. Um, we want you to be there. So get, get signed up for that. And I think that's the only thing I want to cover tonight. Preston, let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this night, God. Father, we thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you, Father, for this study we're going to go through today. And Lord, as you read through chapter 3, we might think, you know, just nothing there. And just keep going. And and, and yet, Lord, we're going to find so many nuggets and so much much value in in chapter 3 and so many things. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for your word that's just so powerful and so life-changing. Lord, we thank you for the life of Nehemiah. Lord, we we ask just your blessing over this, this story and... Uh, this this real life history, God, and, and Lord, that we could apply it to our lives today. That this story shows us Jesus, as, as every part and every page and every scripture shows us Jesus. Even as Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he he said, beginning at Moses, he expounded to them all the things concerning himself. And so we see Jesus through the entire Bible, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, Amen. So we left off last week in chapters or in verse number seven. Um, Basically, to kind of get a little running start here, um, 14 years after the book of Ezra, we we run into Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah was a Jew who was born in Persia after the the 70-year captivity of the nation of Israel in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar and the the, um, Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians, and we've had succession of Medo-Persian kings leading up to the time of Nehemiah. The first big name was Cyrus. He was the first Medo-Persian king, and he gave a decree to Ezra and Zerubbabel to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And then now we get to um, Nehemiah, and the king is a king by the name of Artaxerxes Longimanus. He's a famous king in in history, and why Artaxerxes Longimanus in this time frame is so important and why we land on this one is because in Daniel chapter 9, the decree to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem, and the marking of the, the, the prophecy in Daniel 9 from Messiah the Prince comes from this king, Artaxerxes Longimanus, where we find ourselves in Nehemiah, who Nehemiah served under as his cupbearer. Now, um, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He had never been to Israel. He was born and raised in Persia. He had a position of prominence. He had a very well uh, high, high position. Being uh, the king's cupbearer probably would have been in a rotation. He probably wouldn't have been 24-7 with the king, but he would have spent a lot of time with the king. The king would have had to trust him. He would have no doubt been, um, as we can see in the narrative of the story, a friend of the king and even a friend of the king's wife. And they were fond of Nehemiah. And the king recognized in the last chapter when Nehemiah showed up and his countenance had changed and he was sad. And he said, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And, and, And normally that could be a death sentence in court if you're sad in the presence of the king. And so Nehemiah says, oh, king, live forever. I'm not trying to poison you. I'm not involved in a conspiracy. And, you know, he's afraid and even says that he's afraid. And then he goes on and he explains to the king that he 
he's sad because his brother has just returned from Jerusalem and he gave a grim report of what's going on back in his motherland. And even though Nehemiah had never been there, we, we covered that last week, that, that deep-rooted um, you know, Jewish history and that, that's within the Jews and how they survived for thousands of years dispersed around the world. And so where we left off was in that scene where the king's asking him why he's sad. The queen speaks up and um, on, on Nehemiah's behalf in verse 6. And then in verse 7 it says, Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, um, I, I got that verse highlighted in my Bible, and it's not maybe in the context of here in Nehemiah, but for, for what you and I do, to do, our, um, do what we do please the king. Do we desire what we desire to do please our king? You know, Jesus as our Lord, it's a title. If we call Jesus Lord and Savior, your, your Lord is somebody. You know, like when, when Peter says in the New Testament, not so, Lord, that's an oxymoron. You can't say not so, Lord. If he's your Lord, then you do what he says, and you do the will of God and what he wants. And so wanting what our Lord, and as our Lord, we follow his will, and, and we want to do what pleases the king. And he said, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must, I always like that word in our Bible, must, Jesus said, you must be born again. Give me timber to make beams for the gates, the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house which I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of God upon me. And so, you know, he's, he's going all out here, right? The king is going to offer him this, this pass to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And not only is he going to go back and rebuild, but he's going to get letters from the king. He's going to make the king give the supplies that he needs and letters to the lumber yard and the other folks to provide the things that he needs to rebuild. What's fascinating to me is that Nehemiah must have been um, a person of certain accomplishment and character, and he, he, was pretty, he was pretty good in what he did, right, because he had never been there. He doesn't really know. He's getting this information from his brother, and yet even as he's talking to the king and formulating the plan, he's in his mind already executing parts of the plan to get the lumber, to get the things. And the other thing that's fascinating is when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he, 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 he finishes this feat in 52 days. Now, now mind you, he wasn't a builder. What was, what was he? He was a cupbearer, right? He was somebody who probably dressed nice and, and, and in the court of the king and whatever that meant and probably had to behave a certain way as they did in, in court. And, um, and yet he, in 52 days, now, why, why do you think, how do you think that's possible? Well, look at, look at verse number 8, right? This last part tells you, what does it say? According to the good hand of my Lord upon me. You know, you know what, you guys? Listen, we can accomplish anything if God's hand is upon us, if God's will is for us, if God goes before us. And, and to have the, the, the will, the, the faith. You know, the Bible says you prophesy according to your faith, Right? And so, so to, to have the faith to believe that God will do it and can do it through you and step out in faith and do big things for God, that God will show up. When I was here, when I first came here, you know, like, it, it, was, it was miraculous a lot of things. And not, not, I'm not trying to, you know, not to my own credit at all, just stepping out in faith was what I did. But then watching God show up in some super miraculous ways. When we first, when we first rented this building, we rented this suite that was here. And it was a dance studio, and that floor was black and white checkered. It stayed that way for a long time. And we had the stage here and um no no i'm sorry i did that wrong this was the first building 
and it was a, a, a it was a barber shop. And so this wall had all these plugs and all this stuff all the way down this wall. And the first, where, where the sound booth wall is now, I stood there for the first sermon. You came in this door, and all the chairs were set up this way, facing that way. And that back room was Sunday school. So you had to, kids had to come through the sanctuary into the back to where Sue would keep all the kids by herself back there on our first Sunday. And um, in order to rent this building, there was, it was like 1400 bucks or 1200 bucks, And the church had, um, they wanted first and last month's rent. And so we had started a little Bible study in our house on Wednesday nights, and part way into that, we started receiving a tithe, and we told people anything that we get, we'll go to starting a Sunday morning, and I was constantly going around town trying to find a place we could meet on Sunday mornings, and I went to the old Hollywood video building that's now the whatever it is over there, and um, the guy wanted like 14000 a month. Yeah, it's probably what he got, you know, but it was like, so I don't know, it was daunting, like, oh my gosh, we're never going to... And then we find this building in this suite here, and they want 1200 bucks a month. I'm like, all right, well, you can wrap your mind around that. And by that time, we had about $2,200 in the church account. So he wanted first and last month, so it was 2400 bucks. So we wrote him the first check from the church here at Willow Springs. The first check we ever wrote was a check for $2,400, but the account only had 2200 in it. So Lydia and I wrote a check to cover the difference, like on hold in the account. So the account was technically in red. And we wrote the first check for 2400 We rented this. We had no chairs. We had... Nothing left, like supernaturally, like it was like um, August 1st, we advertised September 1st as our first Sunday. By September 1st, we had chairs, we had, had a little rickety pulpit, I think I probably just threw it away, but someone had this little rickety wood, but we had no like screens or anything, so I don't even know how we did it, I don't remember how we did music that first day, but um, before we had our first Sunday, God told me to rent this side, and it was going to be, and I thought, oh man, I'm going to negotiate with them, and you know, I'm a big player now. I'm renting two sides, you know. And so the guy's in Salt Lake. He's out like Sugar House where his, where his office is. And so we hadn't had our first Sunday yet, but I knew. I knew God. And it was just the coolest day of my life, really, because I really felt impressed by the Holy Spirit that I was supposed to rent this other side. I had no money, minus $200. And God was speaking to me clearly. And I'm like, this is going to be the coolest thing ever because I know God's speaking to me. And um, we don't have any money. So God's going to have to show up and do a miracle. And, and the other thing is I can't tell anybody. Because everybody will think I'm crazy. They'll, they'll, they'll push back. They'll, they'll say, no, don't do it, and whatever. You know, like, so I couldn't tell anybody. I didn't want to tell anybody. I just wanted to keep it close, and I'm just like, so I call the guy, and I'm like, hey, I want to meet with you. I want to see about renting the, the other side. And this was the dance studio. And, and it, but, you know, we had to be able to take this wall out for it to work. I didn't know if he was going to let us do that and how it was going to work. And, and, and now he's going to come out on a Monday, drive out from Sugar House to meet with me, and I'm totally wasting his time. And that and it's like we schedule it for like i don't know a week and a half out so we're getting close to when he's going to come out on that monday and on that sunday uh long story short you guys have heard the story uh a guy showed up that i had never met i didn't know him he he showed up and he said i want to meet with you and i'm like he's texting me we called and we called back and then we didn't get a hold of him so then i text him and he texts me back and he said tomorrow at noon i want to meet with you and you'll know why then so i agreed to meet with him and lydia's like that's strange are you going to meet with this guy and I'm like, well, I told him I would. So the next day, I was like, kiss my wife and my kids goodbye. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to meet with this stranger I've never met before. So we go over here to uh, Dimitri's for lunch. And he starts asking me all kinds of questions about money and all this stuff. And he talks to me about, does the church believe in tithing and giving? And what do we do for missions? And what is my philosophy? And so I'm sharing with him what, what God's put in my heart. And, 
And then he tells me that he has uh, a gift that he wants to give us, that he, he said he's not been disobedient to God, but he's been holding on to it for about a month and a half because it was kind of strange and he felt like he wanted to be sure God, this is what God was telling him to do. And he said, I heard about this little startup church, Calvary Chapel. He's familiar with Calvary Chapel. And, and so then he handed me an envelope and he said, he said, there's a gift in there for you guys after an hour of conversation. And he said, don't open it till you get home and don't tell anybody where you got it. So I, I, I took the envelope and when he wasn't looking, I came over here. I couldn't make it all the way home. He told me not to open it when I get home. Well, this was close enough. This was my new home. So I came into what was the little church building at the time that we were painting and getting rid of some of this stuff and trying to clean up a little bit. And, and I opened the envelope, and there was a check for 40000 in there. And the next day was my meeting with the guy for, to, for the other side, and that's how we started. And that's how the chairs are sitting in, the monitors, and all that stuff originally that, that came. But it was, it was complete, like God did miracles, right? And what, all we did was we stepped out in faith, and, you know, it was like I, I had never seen this guy again. He did give me his phone number, and after about two years, things were growing. We were doing different things. The church was kind of growing a little bit, and I wanted to see the progress of what, what he invested in and what God told him. And so I had invited him to come out and bring his checkbook. And um, oh, I'm just kidding. You know, it's crazy. The guy, the guy himself, like, and I don't, I don't know a ton about him, honestly. And how he heard about us, I'm not even totally sure. But because um, he doesn't live in Tooele, he's not from here. He heard about our church plant through Calvary somewhere. And um, he's not a rich guy. He's not. He's a retired cop. And he started a ministry about 20 years ago of, of taking it. He, he, he stepped out in faith, and he had an amount of his, his retirement, and they were doing a, a, a short-term mission in, like, Texas or something. And he ran into a situation where a woman was, was in need, and she needed about $35,000. And that was what him and his wife had saved toward their retirement. And so he took everything they had, and, and he invested it in this 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 ministry and then as soon as he did that um god gave him like miraculously about seventy thousand. and it was a he told me how it happened it was it was a his buddy called him and they were calibrating scales and he did it on the side and he was making i don't know a lot of money so he, they shipped these scales to his house and they taught him how to fix them and then he'd ship them back out and they were doing tons of them and they were making tons of money he made like 70 grand in in no time and so he took that 70 grand and he did the same thing and he invested it in the kingdom of God. Now, this is not for all of us, right? This is, this is a specific call and ministry that God had for this guy. But you'll see that in the area of generosity. Not, not that generosity or giving or trusting the Lord is not for everybody. But that's like he, he kind of reached that, that next level of, of just faith and just reaching out and believing in God. And then what, what happens is it starts to snowball. You know, we've seen this with us and in, in, in our time supporting missionaries and, and, and trying to be as, a, as, as much as we believe generous towards the missionaries that we support. And as we do that, um, God has supernaturally put it back, you know, everything that we give. And when we, we give generously and, you know, Jason, who was just here from Georgia, he, he left with $15,000, probably 20 by the time you guys did stuff that didn't come through the church, just directly through him, about $20,000 that day, which, you know, is a generous gift for any size church. For missionary in one Sunday, you know, and so, um, but God just continually puts it back, and God puts it back, and so this guy, this retired cop, it, it began to develop into really a lifestyle ministry for him, and then that's what he started doing. He just started investing in ministries, and and who knows? I mean, and he obviously was sensitive to the Holy Spirit, right? Because how did he find us, and how did he know, and the timing, and and for him to be obedient, and he did say, right, like, 
I, I haven't been disobedient to the Lord, but he told me to do this a month and a half ago, and I've been waiting um, and, and trying to make sure that I heard the will of God because it does seem a little haywire. But, um, but anyways, it was the good hand of God was upon us, and God had a plan and a vision for us. And, you know, it, so, so many miracles along the way, so many things where, where God just supernaturally did things. The building that you're in now, the, the remodeling, the whole process was miracles upon miracles all the way. Hey, uh, Brian, will you turn that heater down and crank it way up um, before we started tonight? Are you guys warm? Heather's put on her sweater, so she's not warm. But um, And I'm asking you to turn the heater down. But I'm a fat kid up here with, like, thermals. I got my – I've been sitting in my cold – my office back here is freezing cold. And so I'm dying up here. But I could turn the fan on. We can leave the heat up. All right. So Nehemiah's um, – He's going to accomplish really again. And and, in 52 days, he's a cupbearer. He's not a builder. So there's nothing that you can't do that God has put in your heart, that God wants to do if you'll step out in faith and believe that it's not you who does it anyways because God can't use you if you're going to be in the way. If you're going to think it's because of your skill or because of your gifting or because, you know, and honestly, hopefully when I tell these stories, I I, I humbly and just honestly that it's not, it's in spite of me. It's not because of me. God did it supernaturally supernaturally. And it's to his glory, and it's something that he wanted. And the truth is that this same story would have repeated whether Lydia and I um, called, uh, uh, heeded the call when we felt it, or, or if we stayed in Yucca Valley. Somebody else, God would have brought somebody else here. There would be somebody else standing here today. You guys would still be here. The same stories would be true because God was going to do that work that, that he had ordained to do. And so let's step out in faith and allow God to do miracles in and through us. And so in verse 9 it says, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and they came, they gave the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sambalat the Horonite, I love these two guys, Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Now these are the bad guys, Sambalat and Tobiah. So in your story, you can underline their names if you want, write bad guys there. I mean, the fact that one of them's a Horonite and the other one's an Ammonite, that's good. Official heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that the men had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came, verse 11, to Jerusalem and was there three days. Whenever I see three days in my Bible, I automatically think of Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Um, And then it says, Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one in which I rode. Now, again, this is something I kind of already expressed in my story a little bit, that the Nehemiah told nobody, but he kept it close to his heart. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. He had a gift of faith. God had, had entrusted him with this gift to, um, first of all, put his life on the line in front of the king, and then, to, and then to go beyond that and ask for all these special favors, and then to go to Jerusalem, face this adversity. He gets to Jerusalem, and he's not going out in the middle of the day with a banner and and he's keeping it close to his heart, and he's just going to go. He's going to check the things out. So he goes at night, and he just wants to keep it right now, very humble, low beginnings. And, and again, you know, when, when God spoke to me, I was actually driving in the, in the depot out here behind Utah Avenue when the Lord spoke to me, and I, and, and I began to feel it. Well, I didn't, I didn't tell nobody, you know, as, as was the custom, still is the custom. I called Pastor Gerald. And I told him what I felt like God was doing, you know, because there's always somebody you want to bounce it off of when you feel things like that. And it was cool because he just told me, go for it. And I told him, hey, 
I really feel like God's pressing my heart that we're supposed to rent that other side, and we don't have any money, and I don't know how we're going to do it, but I really feel like we're supposed to do it, and I'm going to make arrangements to get it done with no money. And he's like, go for it. But I don't know, maybe he was telling me, like, maybe, you know, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't. But now I think back, I'm like, maybe he was going to write the check. If I didn't show up, I'd have called him back and said, hey, you said go for it. Like, could you write a check for it too? He probably would have. That's the sad part. That kills my faith story, huh? Daddy, I called Daddy. We did, actually, a couple times in our history. You know, we called Daddy and he bailed us out of a couple things. But um, this last time, I'm so wild up here. On Sunday, did anybody, you guys, I think somebody over here, I had one of my throat lozenges up here and I was doing something and went flying up like this on the, a few people looked at it. I don't know how many people in the back can see it, but I just kept going like it didn't happen. And, um, you know, on this last, last, last leg of um, stepping out in faith in this building, and the last big step of faith was we, we agreed to buy this building for 600000 We had 60000 in the bank. And we needed 120000 We needed 90000 down. And we needed 30000 so that when the crew from California came and was going to start the remodel project, that we had money to put in their hands to buy materials. And those guys were here for almost nine days. And like in the first six days, five days, we went through that 30000 really quickly on materials and, and what we were doing. Um, but when, when, when we put that one out, when we made that decision to step out in faith, there was no... We, we, for the first time... We didn't ask for help outside of this church. We didn't call California. I didn't call the home church. I didn't say, call dad. I just said, and I told the church that. I said, you know what? In the past, we, we've asked for help from my sending church, and they've sent help, and um, they're going to send a crew up to do the work. But um, it, it's one thing to, to, to you know, to, to b- obtain it. It's another thing to maintain it. And unless there's buy-in from this church, and unless this is something that we want to do as a church family, then, you know, we're not going to be able to do it. So we didn't, and we just we just believed in faith. And I preached on money for like six weeks in a row. I really did. I, I thought people were going to leave because every Sunday I was talking about money. We went through First and Second or Second Corinthians eight and nine, all about tithing and investing, and we talked about money a ton. And we we led up to the Sunday when we received an offering, and um, we 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 were, we needed sixty thousand. Didn't think sixty thousand would come, but we in in one Sunday in that offering, the church gave seventy two thousand dollars. I shared that with you guys, and a lot of you guys were a part of that. You guys remember that, and um, it didn't, yeah, it all came. I counted it on one Sunday, but some people had given it a little before and a little after, but basically through that drive, God gave 72000 and here we are. Came from all inside. No ex-cop didn't show up. Didn't call daddy. Just happened. See, now I do have faith stories. All right, so um, I want to get to some gates tonight. we got about... 15 minutes left, and I want to cover some gates tonight, so we're going to move. So he went at night, and he was he was kind of spy games. He was checking it out, and then in verse 13, it says, And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuge gate, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem where they were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animals, the animal under me to pass. So I went up by night in the night by the valley, and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered the, by the valley gate, and so returned. And the official did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. 
Then I said to them, You see these distresses that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. And then they set their hand to this good work. So we, we give Nehemiah credit for building the walls, but actually, what did Nehemiah do, right? He inspired the people to do the work. Because Nehemiah himself wasn't going to build these um, 10 gates in 72 days. I mean, in, um, in, in 52 days. But there in verse number um, 18, it says, set their hand to do the work. And, I, and again, that's about the story I just told. The 72,000 that came, that was your hands that, that put together to do the work. And that's exactly what, you know, needed to happen. And here Nehemiah, he's because the good hand of the Lord is upon him and God's will was in it and the people were there. So we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. And then it says, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official and Geshem and Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? And so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we will serve. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. And so I love that. Verse 20 is power pack too, right? It says, um, the God of heaven himself will prosper us, and therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. That word arise is a, is a powerful Bible word. It's a man's word, arise, abide. Those are, those are good Bible words. And then it says, so they're going to do it. They'll arise and build, and they have no heritage or right. And so we'll get to Sanballat and Tobiah when we get into chapter 4. They're really going to show up a ton and give Nehemiah a bunch of trouble. And we'll see the, the way that they came against the work of the Lord. We'll see that through Sanballat and Tobiah how Satan comes against um, the work of the Lord in, in any ministry. But now we come to the wall, the actual wall. Now, um, again, 52 days, uh, Nehemiah and the, and the people of, of Israel accomplished this. Now, it says, Then it, Eliashib, the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. And they consecrated and hung its doors, and they built as far as the Tower of, tower of the Hundred and consecrated as far as the Tower of Hananel. So what you see here is um, basically the old city of Jerusalem. I need to get one of them laser pointers so I can be kind of cool. Um, but here you see the old city of Jerusalem. So down here, um, it's, just, it's laid out like it would north this way, south, east, west, um, and then he's going to start there in the sheep gate, and he's going to work counterclockwise around the ten gates as they're going to build them. They're going to come in order in chapter 3. Now, the temple is in the northern kind of central part there. It's there on Mount Moriah. Here on the right side is the Kidron Valley. So if you've got the Kidron Valley here on the east side, what's on the other side of the Kidron Valley? The Mount of Olives, right? Where, where the gar- Oh, there we go. So you have the three um, valleys there. So the Hinnom Valley, the Teropia Valley, the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is mentioned in the Bible many times because Jesus would cross um, from Moriah to um, the Mount of Olives because the Garden of Gethsemane was over there. That's where he was betrayed. And the Kidron Valley is where the blood of the sheep would, would flow during the time of Passover. And then the Hinnom Valley, Teropian Valley. And then where Jesus was crucified would be out the fish gate 
up towards the the northwest, just kind of catty corner this way where Golgotha is, um, probably taken through the fish gate because that's the direction of where um, Calvary is there in Jerusalem. You know, if you picture it today, where the, the temple is, that's where the Dome of the Rock is, Mount Moriah, um, the east gate there. We'll talk about that. I think we'll get, maybe, I don't know, we won't get to it tonight, but because we're going to start at the Sheep Gate and we're going to go around the city counterclockwise through Nehemiah chapter 3. And each of them will have some uh, biblical significance. And they each mean something. So you guys can try to guess what they mean. Some of them are obvious. Some of them not so much. And then full disclaimer here. I didn't come up with this Bible study. I stole it from somebody else. I stole it from a pastor named Gary Hamrick, Calvary Chapel Cornerstone in Lynchburg, Virginia. So, you know, I have to quote that because if you steal from one guy, it's plagiarism. If you steal from eight guys, it's research. So I do lots of research for my sermons. Very rarely is it like just one guy's stuff. So this, this, I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't come up with this. It, it's fascinating, though. I, I heard it, and I'm like, i got to share it because it's really good. So Pastor Gary Hemick from Cornerstone Calvary, he's a great Bible teacher. If you're looking for podcasts, if you're looking for um, Bible teaching on the web, on the Internet, check him out. Um, phenomenal Bible teacher, Calvary guy, and just, just a phenomenal Bible teacher. So um, anyways... So the first one, so the ten gates as we go around the city are going to mean something. Now, an ancient gate or city gates, they're, they're very important, right? Because the, the gate was, all, all, was always the weakest point in the city. So the, when the enemies came, the soldiers came, where would they come? They would come to the gates. And so um, they're an important part. In, in ancient times, the business was located in the gates. The elders would sit at the city gates. The, the boards, the um, philosophers would sit at the city gates. The meetings were held at the city gates. Um, daily public life was conducted through the city gates. Um, again, the elder court, as I just said, the, where the war strategies were taking place. All this stuff would happen at the city gates. Um, criminals would be executed at the city gates. And so the first one here. Now, what's cool about this one is um, the people are going to work and everybody's going to work. So the pastors here in chapter in verse chapter 3, verse 1. So who built the gate or who helped with the building of the gate, the sheep gate? The high priests. So the high priests um, were the ones who built the sheep gate. Now, the sheep gate, it is... This gate, this gate represents Jesus himself. And Jesus is our great high priest, right? In, the, in Hebrews it says that Jesus is our great high priest. In the book of Revelation, as we study through, um, as we've been studying, 31 times Jesus calls himself and refers to himself in the book of Revelation as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I think it's important that as we start, and as Nehemiah started, that everything starts in your life, in my life, in our Christianity, in our walk, starts with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you ever get any sideways in any way, doctrinally, in any way in your heart, if something is twisted, you come back to Jesus. You reset on Jesus. You get right with Jesus. You spend time with Jesus. You talk to Jesus. You seek Jesus personally and intimately. And so... The um, sheep gate is Jesus. I love it that the high priests were there. Now, the practical function of the sheep gate is exactly what it says. The reason why it was called the sheep gate was because um, 100,000 to 250,000 lambs a year at Passover would be sacrificed in the temple. The blood of the lambs, again, would be um, uh, would be tunneled or, or what's the right word I'm looking for, would be routed into the Kidron Valley. That's why it's um, 
I don't know, it's kind of cool, I don't know if it's factual, but that Jesus would have had to cross the Kidron Valley on the, on the way from um, the Last Supper, and it would have been at time of Passover, they would have had to come back through that way, and so if the Kidron Valley was full of the blood of these lambs that are being sacrificed for Passover, that the blood of, of, the blood of lambs, that Jesus' robes would be dipped in the blood of these lambs as they would pass through the Kidron Valley. But the Sheep Gate, again, practically... In the time of Jesus, in the time of Israel, when you brought sheep to the temple, they had to come through there. It's called the Sheep Gate for a reason. They wanted all the sheep coming through that gate. So you brought the sheep through the Sheep Gate to um, be sacrificed for um, Passover. Now, you guys remember, um, I think my favorite is John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why was that so, like, significant in the do- in the time? Now, it's for us, it maybe loses its significance a little bit, but in the time, it's radical because the, the, lamb take, the Lamb covers the sins. And all those hundreds of thousands of lambs that were sacrificed in Israel every year, but the idea was that you would take your lamb, and sometimes your lamb would represent your whole family because your whole family would bring one. And they would have you lay on the head of the lamb as you would transfer like your family sins and your sins to the lamb. And the idea was that the, innocent, the lamb was innocent and the blood of the innocents, then they would, they would you know, I've seen videos. There's a guy who went to Israel and um, he filmed some of the videos of, of them sacrificing um, lambs. And it's violent. And it's like gory. And, and they show like the throat of the lamb as they like cut it and the video the camera views in on it and it's it's like they do it for a reason that the fact that that the price that jesus paid on the cross was violent you know we all seen the movie that mel gibson did and it didn't even do it justice but it helped you understand a little bit the violence of what jesus faced and so the fact that the killing of the lambs is violent is just the way that it is it's by nature it's violent and they would take a knife and they would slice the 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 um, neck of the sheep and then they would transfer the sins into the innocent sacrifice and, the, and it would take the blood of the lamb on behalf of your family on behalf of you, on behalf of your sins and they would sprinkle them upon the altar and um, there on the mercy seat on the, on the Ark of the Covenant and, and that would cover your sins for a year but the, they would cover your sins and, and Israel did that and they practiced that for thousands of years right? And any Jewish family would do that. They would go to Jerusalem if they could every year, and they would bring a sheep, and it would cover the sins of their family for that year until the next year when they would go back. And then when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who now takes away the sins of the world. Now today, we, we don't sacrifice lambs, right? There's no more animal sacrifices in Christ because he was sacrificed once and for all. He died for the sins of the whole world. And now, and now by faith, we believe in Jesus. By faith, we receive the blood of Jesus, that his blood covers our sins. And we don't have to do animal sacrifices. They did animal sacrifices as a picture looking forward to the Lamb of God that would one day come and not only cover, not no longer cover the sins, but take away the sins. That's why anybody who died in the Old Testament didn't go to heaven immediately. They went to paradise. They went to a place in the Bible called Abraham's bosom. It was a holding place. Remember the story. There was a great crevasse. There was a great, great um, divide between the two holding spots in Abraham's bosom between heaven and hell. 
And then when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says before he ascended, he first descended and he set captivity free. And he emptied the side that was the paradise side that was holding place. But because they were only covered in the blood of lamb, they couldn't go into the heaven where they are now in the presence of the father because their sins were only covered. And now the blood of Jesus Christ washed them away, took them away. And then this side of the cross, they're no longer Abraham's bosom. The Hades side, or side of torment, still remains to this day. But now the Bible says in Corinthians and other places, it says, today it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So immediately when we die today, because we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, we go to heaven. Abraham's bosom no longer exists. Abraham's bosom was not, again, um, a parable or a story in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, because what Jesus taught, it was fact. It was reality. And remember the rich man and Lazarus in that story? You can reference that if you forgot that. So um, we'll try to do one more. So that's the sheep gate. It's Jesus. Um, all right. Then we go to the next one. And it says in verse 2, it says, Next, Eliashab and the men of, Jer- of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and, and bars. Anybody want to take a wild guess what this one represents? Fishing. Fishers of men. Fish gate is evangelism. So the first one is Jesus. Is, is Jesus. The second one is evangelism in the fish gate. Now, again, the fish gate was exactly like the sheep gate. It was exactly like the sheep gate. It was the fish gate. And, and again, there was lots of different fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee and other places. Um, the tilapia there, I think 100,000 to 250,000 pounds a year of tilapia are caught out of the Sea of Galilee. It's not that much fish, to be honest. It feels like a lot. But 250,000 pounds of fish, when I, when, I was in, uh, when I was in Bible college, I spent two summers in Alaska. And in the particular plant that I was in, and we were, we were canning salmon, but we would do between like 700,000 and a million pounds of salmon a day. And that's out of the uh, Puget Sound, I mean, but still, it's salmon. That's, but still, it's a lot of fish. So 250,000 a year sounds like a lot, but it's, it's not a terrible lot. But So anyways, but the fish, 12 different kinds of um, fish species, fish types were... Um, Israel were harvested in Israel, and so you don't want the whole city smelling like fish, right? So they dedicated a gate and a place where the fish would come through. So in a practical sense, the fish gate would come through there. Um, I think I had a picture of a St. Peter's fish. Ryan and Jessica were in Israel with me. They would be familiar with this. So this is washed down with a Sprite there. Um, When you go to Israel, one of the places we stay at, we go to, and it's famous. Now, Pastor Gerald, Lydia's dad, like, has done tons of tours of Israel, but He's like crazy about this stop on our tour. Like he insists that you get the St. Peter's fish because they have like two options or three options, like pizza or the fish. And he's like, oh, you can get pizza anytime you want. You know, it's, it's got the eyeballs on it and the scales and like Lydia would refuse to eat it and he wouldn't let her order the pizza. So he ordered the fish for the St. Peter's fish. So she just put a napkin over it and didn't eat anything. And we would just sit there. But I think I did try the St. Peter's fish. You might as well uh, when in Rome, you know. But that's the tilapia out of the Sea of Galilee, the fish that the fishermen, that Peter and those guys would have caught. Now, um, Jesus said that you and I are to be what? Fishers of men, right? 
And again, we're, we're, we don't clean fish before we catch them. Simple concept, right? And sometimes as Christians, we, tr- we try to do that, right? We try to clean people up before we share the gospel with them, before they get saved. We, we deal with issues and sins in their lives and things. And th- that's not the point, right? It's not our job. Our job is, is not to clean them. Our job is not to save them. Jesus was, was super clear. The Bible's super clear what our job is. Our job is not to judge them. Like you think, like so Jesus said, I'll judge them. Like, Lord, let me judge them. And you, you know, you love them and I'll judge them. He said, no, you love them and I'll judge them. And, and so we're not to judge them. We, we, we don't know if who's saved and who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. That's not our job. Very simple what the Bible says our job is. Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall have power to do what? Power! Remember? Power. Now you know what verse I'm talking about. Power to be, come on, y'all, witnesses. Very good, right? Witnesses. That's our job. That's your call of God is to be a witness. You can always testify of what God has done in your life. It, it, it takes the burden off of you. You, you don't have a heaven to send somebody to or a hell to send them to. You didn't die on a cross for nobody. You have nothing to, to be proud of or brag on or boast on or, you know, but you have you have this. That's your greatest tool as a, as a Christian witness. It's an index finger, and it points people to Jesus. And constantly pointing people to Jesus, constantly pointing them to Jesus and being a witness and sharing with them. Now, we, we do, right, um, in our witnessing and in our desire, we, we kind of walk a, a tightrope or we walk kind of a, rock in a hard place because we we want nothing more than to tell people about Jesus. We'd spend all of our time, they would let us talking about Jesus. But if you do it too much or you don't do it tactfully, then you push people away and they don't want to hear it. And so you want to build relationships and you want to love people and you want to be tactful in your witness and, and loving because ultimately, you know, as we've shared many times, the entire point of Christianity is for us to be more loving and to love people. We're not growing in our love for God and for people. We're, we're doing something wrong. Like that has to be the, the ultimate goal of Christianity is love. Love God, love people. And yet, you know, to say not enough is is hard and to say too much is hard. And, you know, that's just a fine tightrope. We're always going to walk through life trying to figure out how much to push, how much to pull back. You know, to me, I think, whenever I think of this dilemma, I think like when, when this person is standing before God one day, I would much rather them be mad at me today because I pushed too hard than stand before God because I didn't push at all and having um, not known the truth and then and then be hate me in that moment because I never told him. And, and standing before God when they know that they're known and they're, they're being judged and they're not saved and they're saying, man, Chris knew all this stuff all this time and he never told me. Now, now they're mad at me. I'd rather have them mad at me now because I did tell him or I told him too much or maybe I pushed a little too hard. Um, but again, our job is to be fishers of men, and, and that's that's the call of God on our lives. Amen? Amen. You know, in the book of Revelation, after the church is removed, for the first time, God is going to use angels and 144,000 um, Jewish evangelists that he's going to raise up and put a seal upon their foreheads. But um, until then, he's not using angels. He's not using supernatural means. Um Unless, I mean, not that he's not using supernatural means. Don't get me wrong when I say that, because he does use supernatural means, but he, he's using you and I. Now, like in Muslim countries where the gospel hasn't penetrated, where they don't have Bibles, we're hearing these phenomenons of, of people getting saved through dreams and visions, and it's phenomenal. It's factual. It's true. It's awesome. You know, in Iraq and Iran, in places where it's so dark, um, 
God is reaching folks there through dreams and visions. And so, uh, but he's chosen us. He's chosen you and I to take the torch, carry the, carry the, the, the mantle of, of being fishers of men. Amen? All right, so we'll get through, I don't know, maybe it'll take us two more weeks to finish the other eight, but we'll go through them. Recap, what do we got? First one is the sheep gate, that's Jesus. The second one is the fish gate, and that's evangelism. And, like me, still got chicken on the brain. Or in the gut, one of the two. I hate these nights. I never eat before I preach because it kind of messes with my... And tonight I ate. I ate two big fat pieces of chicken. All right, let's pray.